You're listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the European Union Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash eu-west-europe. Welcome, everybody. I would like to um, welcome you on a sunny Seattle day and uh, invite you to be part of our Talking Gender in the EU series today with Professor Amy Mazur from Washington State University. Um, this is the second talk officially in this series. Uh, my name is Sabine Lang. I'm a professor of European and International Studies at the Henry M. Jackson School uh, of the University of Washington. Um, I also direct the Center for West European Studies there. We are a Jean Monnet Center of Excellence funded by Erasmus Plus, and I am director of the Center for Russian, East European, and Central Asian Studies this year. This lecture series, uh, as you know, brings together a number of speakers in a very loosely threaded conversation about the state of gender equality in Europe and in the European Union. Um, today, we're looking at a very particular case in a very exciting member state in the European Union, namely France, long, I would argue, a laggard in gender equality but in recent years, uh, much sought after, much looked towards because of a particular law that we're gonna hear about today. The format as always about a 30 minute lecture. Um, and I, before I introduce Amy Mazur, would like to acknowledge that this forum as everything we do at the centers could not have been possible without our dedicated sponsors. This series in particular is sponsored by the Center for Global Studies, the Russian East European Central Asian Center, CUS, Jean Monnet. Um, and last but not least, as always, this also would not happen without a lot of dedication and commitment by our staff at the center, our managing director, Phil Lyon, as well as Jessica Meyerson and Susanna Haley too. A big thank you for uh, steering us smoothly through Zoom times, organizing, advertising, and, and coordinating these events. So we're really fortunate to have Professor Amy Mazur with us. Amy Mazur is the C.O. Johnson Distinguished Professor in Political Science at Washington State University and also a associate researcher at the Laboratory for Interdisciplinary Evaluation of Public Policy at Sciences Po in Paris. Her recent books include the Oxford University Press Handbook of French Politics that she co-edited with the late Robert Elgie and Emiliano Grossman in 2015. And really in the gender world, in the global gender research world, a by now standard um, book that she uh, edited with um, Dorothy McBride in 2010 called The Politics of State Feminism 
innovation in comparative research. So she is currently co-convening with Isabel Engeli from Exeter University, the Gender Equality Policy and Practice Network called JEP. And she is also in her spare time lead editor at the Journal of French Politics and currently a fellow in residence, albeit virtual, uh, at the Center for Interdisciplinary Research at uh, University of Bielefeld. So Amy Mazur wears, wears a lot of hats, um, many of them related to advancing gender research, public policy research in a global context. And today I'm happy that she has agreed to talk with us on gender parity in France. Thank you very much for being here, Amy, and over to you. Thank you so much, Sabine, uh, for that wonderful introduction. So the title of my talk is uh, 20 Years of Parity in Practice in France, Incremental Gender Transformation. Uh, and, and what we have here for, from a scientific perspective is we have uh, 20 years of a policy that was first uh, put into action in uh, 1999. And so we have an opportunity to actually see what's going on with it. Uh, and you can already see there's an argument, incremental gender transformation. So it's, and we'll be defining, I'll be defining what that is, um, but you can see that it's glass is half full, glass is half empty. Uh, the other thing is that this picture uh, here is actually from last March on International Women's Day when I was, I was in Paris right before everything got shut down. And so I took a picture of this great, uh, it was at the Bastille in France. Uh, in Paris, and I just thought I always love starting with that because I think it really encapsulates, encapsulates and captures so much about what gender equality politics and policies, which is it, it's a struggle. It's always a struggle and it's, it's not going, the struggle is not, the challenges and the struggle are not going away anytime soon. Uh, and in fact, perhaps are getting more uh, enunciated um, as we have these global challenges of a pandemic and the rise of, of populism throughout the world. I'd like to first talk about what is parity. It's a, it's a word that comes from the French context. It's a French twist on gender quotas. So first set that up. What do we mean by that? What's, what are we talking about? And then I'm gonna look at this laboratory in, in the making. We're gonna look at uh, how parity was passed, adopted as a policy uh, since the 1990s, what the struggle over, you know, the, there's, there was a struggle over elected office, there was a movement, there were initial policy um, reactions by the government, uh, what we call symbolic, which already foreshadows this glass is half empty, glass is half full. Uh, there was a slow expansion of parity to a lot of different areas, which by the way, as, as Sabine rightly said, it kind of, France is kind of, is kind of the poster child and, and often like presents itself as being, wow, we're the champion of all this stuff. Uh, but at the same time, France was way far behind. So we're gonna be talking about that. And then we're gonna look at uh, parity in action, this policy in action through the lens of this research group, uh, the analytical framework of this research group I've been co-convening. We've been putting in uh, to place an analytical framework that lots of different people have been using. So just very briefly go into that. Uh, and then we're gonna look at parity in practice. What has happened? And there's three uh, different areas, if you will. One is elected office, uh, all elective offices, 
Then also the senior civil service, it was put into action in that uh, area. And then uh, corporate boards, which is a very controversial area, as you might imagine, because you're then getting more into private sector stuff. Uh, and then, uh, and I put in that these uh, these measurements, gender accommodation, simple transformation, gender accommodation, just to give you the heads up that that these are the assessments of these policy uh, outcomes uh, coming from Jeff. And then I'm going to have some conclusion. And then, I, as I always do, I, I always like to throw out some questions from just for discussion, because I think uh, I like to get your perspective on. The French case, because it is the French case and you're coming from all over the world. So we'll have to work through that on the Q&A. So first, what is what is parity? It's a French word, parité. I mean, we have the word in English, but it came out of the French context. The French Francaise, and so this is a French twist on gender quotas. Gender quotas are uh, our um, target set, usually in elect for elected office, uh, usually in sometimes for candidates, sometimes for women, for outcomes, for actual election results. Um, and they're set for uh, certain proportions of men and women. Uh, it's not, if you're from the United States, we don't really have anything like that, which is an interesting issue in of itself. Uh, sometimes we call that affirmative action, but it's really not that at all. So the French and all country, most countries of the world, except the United States, <laughs> have gender quotas for women in public office. Um, sometimes the quotas do get extended to um, other underrepresented groups, but really the, the quotas for elected office really always came, has always been about women. Um, throughout the world. And in France too, it's, it is about women. Um, it's about promoting women in elected office. That is to address uh, extremely deep differences um, uh, or what's called the gender gap in, uh, usually starts uh, in the in, uh, national legislatures. Uh, and Fra in France, uh, they did not use the word quota they rejected it. They used the word parité, parité. And this is very much a reflection of the French context and uh, an effort to not be too authoritative and too demanding. Um, and so the idea is men and women are kind of equivalent. Um, and actually uh, it was a constitutional amendment, which is pretty incredible in these kinds of areas. Uh, but it was a very soft, they call it soft laws, where the equal access, equal access of men and women to elective office and elected functions. Uh, so it's promoting that, but it's not mandating it. And the parties and political groupings contribute to the implementation of this principle. And in 2008, it was extended to other areas. So it, it's definitely something French and it came out of the context of the French campaign for women's balanced representation. So making parity work in France since the 1970s. So since the 1990s, the, the movement for more uh, equal representation uh, finally came up in the 1990s, which is kind of late. 
um, after uh, France had been a laggard, I, Sabine and I did not talk prior to this. So we used the same word. France had been really, really behind the ball, uh, more than the United States, because the United States still is way behind, way, way, way behind other countries in terms of women's representation. So if we look at the table, we can see that pretty much not much happened. Um, so you can see right away, and if you were here, I would ask the question, well, what do you observe from this table? It's pretty clear that France was pretty pathetic up until they passed the laws, right? And they started, and then boom, something went up. And this is just about the National Assembly. So France was a laggard, uh, the parity movement, and they started using the term parité. It was, it was coined by feminists who wrote a manifesto. It was, this was not a white guy thing. It was white women though. And that's one thing that's huge is that this is not about intersectionality. This is not about other underrepresented groups because France is limited by Republican universalism, which means that uh, it's actually illegal to collect statistics on ethnic, ethnic, ethnic groups. This is a very important thing to understand about France. Um, some other countries are like this, obviously it has nothing to do with the United States uh, approach. But so the Republican universalism, this idea in principle is that uh, we're not going to talk about ethnicity because then it would promote inequality. And it's it's really important to talk about equality, regardless of the ethnic groups and a regardless of gender. But as you all might imagine, you're probably all sitting here. If I saw you in the audience, you'd be like, oh yeah, that's really doesn't work. You have you have to talk about difference if you're going to talk about discrimination. So effectively, Republican universalism has been very gender biased, very biased against underrepresented groups. But this was the context that this movement emerged in, uh, into. So they had to play, the women had to play by the rules of the game. And these were white upper-class women, cisgender, always. They were not interested in other groups. And they were also interested in dealing with that dire situation and doing something about it. So there was a large movement from the left and the right um, that, was, that was actually spearheaded by what's called uh, state feminist um, actors. And this is another foreign idea to, the, to US people uh, because uh, in most Western countries and other countries, there are state-based offices that promote women's rights. Uh, kind of like the EEO in this country um, or the EPA, uh, but for women's rights. And so these state feminists were extremely important and they worked with women's movements in the streets. So jump back to that picture I showed you, you would also, you know, you those women's movements in the streets, but they're also like, like feminist, state feminist actors that are going, yay, we want to support you. So this movement emerged because of how outrageous the, the level of women's representation was. And uh, it gained, uh, it, and, and, and that's how parity came defined by this movement uh, in their manifesto. And they, of course, as feminists do, want more than the gatekeepers want to give. And as you can imagine, the male gatekeepers, the men in power, they're going to lose stuff. They got to lose goodies. Uh, they're going to lose a lot if women get promoted. So this is this is a power struggle, and this is a power struggle at the very pinnacle of political power, at the national assembly level. 
So there was tacit support from both the right wing and the left wing parties. It was not more of a left wing thing, but there's also a lot of reluctance and a lot of like, well, we really don't want to do what you want us to do. So what happened in the immediate movement was actually quite successful. But again, that glasses half full, glasses half empty. So there were constitutional amendments were made to the Constitution in 1999, those ones that I showed you earlier. They put the principle of parity in. They said it should be elected office, and they said the party should be in par power. So this opened the door for next step legislation. Um, uh, but guess what? Guess what? The parties were given the role to implement parity in the Constitution. So again, if you were here, I would say, well, what do you think that was all about? It was about preserving their power. So they're in charge. So here are the parties. They're all, they're super male dominated. They don't want anything to happen. They're like, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Just stick it in the Constitution. And that's what's called symbolic reform. I, 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 a lot of us have used it. Symbolic reform means policy outputs with that really don't mean much. So this was highly limited. Um, so the so on the National Assembly front, there were highly weak sanctions set up to parties. There was a mechanism put into place called party uh, penalties. Um, which I'll go into a little bit more in, in just a second. Um, so parties would have to pay a penalty if they didn't present a certain uh, percentage uh, close to 50% women. Because there is that 50-50 that was enshrined in the Constitution. Equal numbers of men and women. So there were principles enshrined. Uh, so uh, it was just elected office uh, and then electoral system uh, so it was across all elections. So if you look at, uh, let's see, all elections. Well, I'll just, yeah, it was across all elections. So that means canton, municipal elections, departmental elections, national assembly elections, European elections, European elections, national, did I say uh, Senate elections? Because this was in the constitution. And the immediate uh, 2000 law, which we'll just look at shortly, actually talked about the implement in, uh, in national assembly elections. So that was the first stage. The second stage was then how it, it was trying, then parity, and again, this is kind of astonishing, but in some ways it wasn't because it wasn't that authoritative. Uh, it then, uh, they, there was slow change. So, so you had the first 2000 law, uh, which implemented the parity sanctions at the National Assembly level. Um, and then you had uh, a, the expansion into other areas of parity in other areas. So then we saw a law on upper civil service. So promoting parity in the very highest pinnacle of government, uh, non-elected. And then it went to corporate boards and professional associations. So there was this slow expansion of parity between 2000 and 2014 as a policy instrument. Uh, and this was driven by, uh, it wasn't really the right or the left, the government, again, the political parties, the government were like, eh, we're not too happy about this, but we understand that we're looking pretty bad to the world. And there was a lot of that, a lot of EU pressure 
you know, you we're, we're looking at this in the context of the European Union, a lot of pressure. And the women, the women, they were all women, these, um, the people that were behind it were women, were feminists. There was this coalition between the state feminists that were in these new structures. There was a parody observatory uh, set up. Um, there was a parody observatory. There was a parliamentary delegation of women's rights. And then there were women's rights ministers. Um, and actually after the initial movement, that's the, the society side of things kind of closed down and it was really taken up by the state feminists. Um, although there was, um, there was this uh, field of feminist advocacy that kind of developed around parité in general, but it really moved to the state after that movement succeeded because it, it succeeded in getting a constitutional amendment, which was a big deal. But the nuts and bolts of the unfolding of this policy were really watched over by this, this, riot, this, this coalition of women's um, policy agencies. And they were from the left and the right. And we also talk about Sabine and her work and other people, you might've talked about it in other seminars that you've attended here. Um, the role, which is the role of critical actors. That is individual people matter. And Marie-Josée Marman, who was head of the Observatoire, she was a right-wing senator, a right-wing parliamentarian, super, super connected to the right-wing world. She was huge, huge player in this. But also Naja Vallaud-Belkacem, who um, you can imagine is um, what's called a beurre, first generation, um, French person from North Africa. And she was a very young, exciting, dynamic uh, Beur, who was appointed to the women's rights ministry under the left-wing government in 2014. And she had a huge, huge role in this. Um, but, the, but the parties, eh, not so much, not so much. Um, so what we saw happen in the 1990s was an increase in the penalties that were given to the party for the National Assembly, a spread of, of what's called parody grammar. This is gonna come up again time and time um, as I talk, further talk about implementation in the last 10 minutes of my time. Um, that is that there was an acceptance of parody to a certain degree and this expansion to other areas. So here you have the, chrono the chronology of the parody. It's called the parody policy package. I talked about it already. You can look at this in more detail um, when I send you this. I'm not gonna, I already kind of went through it. You got the constitutional reform, the first law, which um, uh, actually some of the, which set up electoral lists um, uh, for the PR. And here electoral systems are really important because uh, some of the elections are run by proportional representation, other by SMDP. Um, and the, um, the, the per first round of par parity penalties for the National Assembly was set up. Uh, 2007, there was some, uh, you, we don't have to go into anything particular, just the laws were made more intense and, and more focused. There was a constitutional reform that then expanded the parity to other, to non-elected office, uh, Cope Zimmerman, 2011, brought in corporate boards. Sauvade in 2012, brought in a quota for women, 40% quota on corporate boards, private corporations. And then we went to departmental. And then the big change on May 7th in 2015 was 2003. They actually changed the electoral system for the departmental elections to first pass the post 
and they had reserved seats. In each department, they had a man and a woman seat automatically, which is pretty radical. Uh, then this other law was passed. This expansion occurred in by 2013. Um, and then the 2014 law really kind of put the nail in the coffin of gender bias uh, quite a, to quite a big deal, a great extent. Again, under Bakasem, Vayo Bakasem and the left-wing government, uh, where you had the part, the, the penalties that were given to government parties uh, in national assembly elections for not having 50% became actually quite expensive. So assessing parity, uh, basically, you know, we all want to know, so what? Did it, this do anything? And that's really what JEP, gender equality policy uh, in practice program is about, which I co-direct. As you can see, our major question is about what did all these policies that get passed in Western industrialized democracies, did they make a difference? And if so, why not? So um, we have a network um, this, and we've had it for since for seven years. And you can see there's co-conveners and there. So we have um, the logic is to look at different policy sectors. So we have uh, looked at different. Um, so we have issue networks and there's about 100 people in this project. And Sabine is in this project. <laughs> She's been very involved in the political representation side of things. And so We've had these different issue networks, corporate boards, equal pay, elder care that have applied this framework. And uh, we've done it across all the policy areas in France. And then there are also some other, other things going on with a network. Um, so Fr the French case has been all analyzed quite well with the JEP framework. Um, the JEP framework was established. Um, we kind of developed it with a group, but there's a publication on it. Happy to send it to you uh, if you're interested. And the analytical framework basically sets up this question of whether do policy do are when policies are adopted, put on the books, legislated, do they make a difference? And here's this is our framework, and you can see this is a model of how the policy process works. And we're interested in these outputs, which are the policies, but we're all but most of all, we're interested in what happens, the practice of it. That's the gender equality policy and practice. And then, uh, I know this doesn't sound that revolutionary, but it is in the world of public policy analysis and gender equality policy, is we want to see what happened. And we see what we're interested in what happened, whether it actually amounted to anything, in terms of whether the problem was solved. So in this case, whether women's representation was increased, but also we're interested in to see if there was real gender transformation, because you can have more women in office, but they can be alibi women, they can, they can be voted out of office, but what really matters is whether there was real gender transformation. Whether there was, were, were the gatekeepers, were those, were the men, the male dominated gatekeepers, did they change their views or were there women replacing them? So this is all about trying to get beyond just symbolic reform. Uh, and the practice also can include uh, women as well. And we look at four outcomes. I only bring these up because I use these terms came from Jeff. And so there's possible outcomes. There's one is like nothing happens, gender neutral. Uh. There can be gender rowback, which means there can be actually backpedaling. Things can get worse. But then there's gender accommodation, which usually is what happens, which is, yeah, we make some laws, some change happens, but the power 
is still in the hands of the dominant men, the male dominated elite and the gatekeepers and really attitudes don't change. And it's also about just white women. It's not about all different kinds of women from different perspectives. And then a final outcome is gender transformation, which is really the gold standard. And we have real change. We have people embracing gender equality, you know, that this is a good thing. Parity is a good thing. We want to achieve it. We want to make sure women have positions of power. And we want to make sure women from underrepresented groups, who women who are not just heterosexual, women have power, all different kinds of women. So, so parity and practice. Uh, the, this is the JEP research that's been published and that I'll be presenting uh, in the next five, oh my goodness, in the next five minutes. Um, so I have lots of, there's lots of uh, articles on that have been published and I'm, I'm building off of these. So parity and practice, uh, elected office, if you were here, I'd ask you, well, what do you think happened? Well, you probably would guess uh, the gender accommodation norm was applied to elected office. Uh, we found that across all elections, while the numbers did increase, and in some cases you can see that they actually went up to 50%. Here's, um, here's a, a tracing of all elected offices. You can see, well, the government actually is up to 50% uh, under Macron. Uh, Conseil Régional, 50%, Green numbers, Parlement Européen, but then, whoops, Municipal Councils, whoops, National Assembly, whoops, Mayors. So you can see not, there's been some, some progress, but not complete numerical progress. But what we really find is the gatekeepers didn't really want to change their attitudes. There was a lot of res res resistance, although there has been some uh, acceptance of parity grammar for elected office. Um, uh, there is uh, there's very little effort to promote women who are not white, not upper class. Um, we still the jury's still out as whether women will stay in office. Um, and actually, we are thinking Macron, the Macron effect, and all the political parties imploding in 2017 might have had more to do with the the increase in women in the National Assembly, which is up to 30%. Actually, the parity laws. Um, so we also see that there still is this, there are many gender bias dominant uh, roadblocks that prevent democratic performance. Senior civil service. Now here's uh, the ultimate irony. Uh, France is known for its elite. It's, there's untouchable senior civil servants, hugely elite, hugely resistant to any efforts to diversify it. And actually the law Sauva Day passed in 2012 even though it was limited to only certain senior civil positions, it actually did more because it had a champion. It had a left-wing, a senior civil servant champion, a man who promoted this and, um, and actually had, it, it achieved gender transformation, simple gender transformation, but people in the senior civil service actually uh, started promoting women. Uh, they, they actually achieved the quota uh, only 4% 4 short. Um, and actually, uh, there was this notion that, that you had needed to have women, they were good. And then there were fines, there were actual fines given to departments, like, if you didn't make this quota, which was very different from the other uh, non-fining of National Assembly, for instance. 
um, which was kind of a symbolic penalty. But finally, uh, the penalties were increased on that and did make a difference. But they took those fines, this guy, uh, Sovade, he said, let's apply it to promoting gender equality. So we're, we're seeing gender transfer, but it's simple transformation limited to white women. Uh, corporate boards, back to gender accommodation, uh, the chapter written, the title there, the French, French success story beyond numbers, business resistance, Trump's timid feminist demands. Uh, here we're in a different sector. We're trying to get 40% um, on management boards, executive director boards, which in, and in the United States, there's just been total silence on this. It's been very controversial and it only happens through stockholders pushing companies. But this was a very quite revolutionary law in uh, across countries, uh, second to Norway's, um, but it had a limits. The numbers were increased. They played the numbers game. But really um, this great analysis, which I urge you to read if I, and I can share it with you, shows that, that women weren't that active, the state feminists couldn't get involved. And so it, it was like just saying, whoa, we're gonna put these women in, but not do much else. So the, the dominant gender, so the gender norms accommodated to what was going on. There wasn't this change that we saw in the upper civil servants uh, and it sort of, it sort of reflected what was happening in elected office. So very quick, so I'm gonna wrap up here. So conclusions, um, yeah, this was pretty revolutionary, but so the glass is half full to a certain degree, uh, but there was a lot of workarounds, uh, real lasting gender transformation hasn't occurred. We're still waiting to see what happens also with the intervening um, COVID issues, um, but, uh, but we, but everyone agrees, all the people that have written on it, is that parody grammar has been accepted, that it's no longer, you have to talk about it. Uh, now, whether you actually go through with it is another thing, but it's no longer a taboo. So that's been a huge development. Um, we, we see change only if women don't take too many positions away from men. So it can't be threatening. Um, so that's a big issue. But there is progress. Um, but the elite, what we call the gatekeepers, what we call the political parties, it lags behind public opinion. So there's this lag. And as I've been reiterating time and time again, um, it's really limited to elite white women. And it, we have a long way to go. Glasses half full, glasses half empty. So these are my questions to you. Uh, and you have questions for me. I can see there's always some in Q&A. So do you have any other additional lessons from the French case? Is there things that jump out at you? Uh, I know it's very different from the United States. If you're from the United States, it's very different. And then how much progress do you think? How much? Is the glass half full? Is the glass half empty? Should we fill you filling it with rosé wine or white wine? Should we? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Because, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, yeah. Uh, and then what lessons can be learned from the French case, maybe for the United States or for other countries you're from? And um, are these, uh, is there anything useful that you can gather out of the French context? So sorry, I went a little bit over and I'm looking forward to dialoguing with everyone. Say, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us, Amy. That's been great. And uh, you know, always instructive to hear the trajectory that is actually quite complicated because there is this multi-level 
different electoral systems for different municipalities or national assemblies. So you really bring it together quite well. And I see the Q&A um, getting, getting full here. So be before we go to that, let me uh, maybe just step back for a moment and articulate that what you call the parody grammar. So um, succinctly is really something that's going on in my view uh, within Europe at large now. This parody grammar that started in France is has spread um, definitely to the country that I research most, Germany. There have been several states in Germany that are now trying to pass parody laws. We've seen it discussed in Italy. Um, there are initiatives in Portugal. So I, I, I think um, however, um, you know, questionable some of the elements of this 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 parody grammar are and you've pointed to some of them they're not this is not about intersectionality at this point this is not really articulating anything about inclusion of other minorities in political representation uh, strongly coming out of the French Republican tradition. However questionable that is, uh, this is where we are in Europe right now that there is a lot of contagion of this grammar. So um, let's maybe just start with the white elephant in the room and that's- Yes, the, that's the right question. <laughs> the first question that has been posed, which is about the upcoming election next April indeed. Um, will be in the first round of the election. Um, and Macron is not looking so good. Uh, there is Marine Le Pen uh, and uh, there is on the other hand, the Paris mayor, Annie Hidalgo. Oh yeah. So yes, where yes. are you on that? Where, where, what will that do to- Yeah, should I, should I tap answer live or should I just leave it alone? Cause I see, I see the question myself. I can see the question, so. Yeah, so right, let's, I, let's talk, is my sense. Um, should I just do answer live like that? Sure, okay. Okay, so but, I'm answering live, hi. Thank you so much, anonymous attendee. I'm sorry I can't see you or know who you are. Um, uh, I think it's great that's the first question that came out because, uh, yes, Sabine said. Wow, that's, um, it's difficult to say. Uh, you know, a lot of things can happen. I think the biggest problem is that all the parties got imploded and um, there's, it's, it's difficult to predict, um, to know what's going to happen. Uh, I think that it's, I think that I'm going to base my question, because I'm a scientist uh, and, I, and, and I think the best predictor of the past, of the future is the past. And the French rallied when when Jean-Marie Le Pen. Uh, so it was um, two thousand. Gosh, it was two thousand. I should know the the year two thousand. It was two thousand and two because the year I turned forty. It was my fortieth birthday. So we had a runoff, presidential runoff between uh, Marie uh, Marine Le Pen's father and Chirac, the right wing candidate, and when and we also saw this with Macron as well. It the French are not going to elect a fascist or anyone who's like fascist light. Um, they may not say it until the elections come, but yeah. And, and Marine Le Pen, there's not this overwhelming um, desire to elect a woman. There, there just isn't. Um, although 
things have changed a lot, the, you know, public opinion, but so her being a woman, I don't think will get her votes. If anything, it'll turn people off. But so I think we have to wait and see. I think I, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm not a political pundit. I, you know, I'm, I'm very cautious about making predictions. So I think we have to see, because you have to remember in 2017, so much happened in the last three months, right before the elections. Uh, if you probably, I don't know if you're what age you are or anything, but um, five years ago might seem if you're young a long time ago, but everything was just shot to hell. Like the parties didn't present, like, like normally this whole procedure occurs with the national assembly, the parties present their lists right after the president is elected and everyone knows what's happening. I know this cause I was in the field and everything was thrown in the air, everything. That lists were presented at the last minute and then Macron threw together his, his, his movement on Marche. So, I mean, just because he's unpopular, I mean, A, it's, he doesn't have a political party really, but the other political parties are imploded. So I'm predicting complexity. I'm predicting we won't know, but uh, this, I, I would also say not, no way Marine Le Pen. I don't, that's, it's, she might get close but also France has a two round system to first, the first round. So we, I think we're gonna have to wait. And also right now they've now made the presidential elections now are connected to the national assembly elections which they weren't for many, many eons. So now we're gonna see the presidential elections and then the national assembly elections but those are interrelated. So that's another complexity of the system. Annie Hidalgo, okay, great. I'm glad you mentioned her name. You obviously, I bet you're from France. Are you from France? You obviously know about. I'd like to know what you think. I think she's pretty. I think she's playing her cards well. Um, you know, she's done a lot. She's been, you know. I mean, it's not like Eddie Cresson when she was prime minister and people were saying, you know, then she was out pissing everyone, excuse me, pissing everyone off saying 25% of the population is gays or out to lunch. She's, she could. She could do something, but the Socialist Party is in complete disarray. I mean, from a French political scientist perspective, someone who's an expert, the parties are in complete disarray. So I know that was a long-winded question, but hey, you sent me a tough, complex question. But what do you think? Can you can you respond back, or can we ask what you think, or what do other people think? I don't know. Can you? Can right. You so people can type, and we can look for comments here. So while people are typing. Could we take together two questions? One is also from somebody anonymous, but I would like to maybe combine it with a question by our colleague, Rich Watts, who is here at UW and a French uh, specialist. Oh, uh, great, hi. Both, both point to this notion that there are actually voices now and visible voices in French public yes, there are. Uh, that uh, aim to what Rich so well calls this reified notion of gender uh, to stretch it into different directions include intersectional voices. Where do you see that being right now and what political effect? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not optimistic because, because the gender parity, that was the moment, right? That was the moment to bring them in. They weren't 
bring in these voices, they weren't brought in. And, and that has been codified now within the French system without putting, I mean, let's face it, there has been no effort. Um, they, I mean, you still can't collect statistics on ethnicity. And if anything, it reified it. It reified it because there, uh, you know, it's, and, and, and a lot of the feminists that were behind it were like, we can't talk about that. We can barely even get women, but it was also a part playing within that. So the path dependent, we talk about past dependencies and institutionalized patterns. And I think that that path dependency I mean, there's possibly to have a there's possible to have a critical juncture. So I'm an institutionalist, but I agree with uh, what was what was your what was his name? The expert. I'm sorry. Rich Watts. Yeah, Rich Watts. I totally agree with you. There are we have some unprecedented voices being expressed. We have some women of color being elected. We have women from different sexual orientation um, coming out uh, literally and coming out literally, but also being vocal in um, politics. Um, and so uh, we are always, uh, it's, there's an optimate, there's change in the air, like l'air du temps. Um, but as an institutionalist, I'm very pessimistic about it. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there is, there has been research, um, my colleague, Catherine Achan, studies this a lot and um, studies the, the women who do come up and a lot, some of the, the women of color are, are basically being selected for how much control the party has over them and are what they're called femme alibi, alibi women, unfortunately, uh, because these are gender norms are a powerful institution. It's it's still powerful. And that's really the take home from this is that, yeah, France has made progress. And it's, but in some ways, it might not be the right direction. Um, but I'm an optimist. I'm a glasses half full person. But I think what Sabine said was extremely interesting was like, yeah, it's being exported in this way. So, but the, but we are in this, the good thing is we are in this, this critical juncture moment, like everything is up in the air in France, right? And then it's compounded by the pandemic um, and, and, and just the craziness of the world and that there are no political parties and the political parties were the major obstacles. So you might think that, yeah, well, maybe there's a space, but unfortunately our research shows that Macron was, is a sexist bastard and he uses, uh, women of color and underrepresented groups rather than empowering them. He used him, them as political pawns. And, um, and so I think that, uh, and also we, we, we have studies now, there's a lot of studies coming out. Uh, my colleagues in Spain, all over, um, Sabine's colleagues, they are actually doing survey, they're studying how is the pandemic affecting women compared to men. Um, and the ones I've seen are in academia and men are winning out, white men are doing much better than men of color and white women by, huge, huge margins. Uh, and so all of the, you know, all of the gendered roles and the, I mean, it's been exacerbated by the pandemic. 
So I'm fortunately not optimistic, but things have changed a lot in the past 20 years. What do you think? Anyway, blah, blah, blah. I'm just blah, blah. No, totally fine. And uh, actually people applaud you in the chat for your optimism. So keep that up a little bit. But, yeah. but uh, you just mentioned, and there is a, a, a number of questions that really take us into the institutional settings of the French system. Susan Red asks, what is an observatoire? Uh, is oh. that a community? Is this a building with people? And let me just tack on one more question here. Uh, you had mentioned in the talk that actually in the 2000s, um, people like Marie-Jo Zimmermann and other right-wing women played an, a, 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 a big role in making the parité legislation more solid, putting it on the, on the, on the screen of institutional settings. So um, is there a strong party cleavage, you would argue, in today's France between the left and the right on this? And how has that sedimented into institutional politics? Right, Observatoire. Observatoire is a rear, it's a, it's a French um, entity. Uh, it means observatory, and it, but it's set up by a government law. It's set up by a law, statute law, uh, but it's not a part of the formal government. It's kind of like quasi non-governmental organizations in the UK, but it has, has a national mandate. And so the Observatoire was set up by uh, the first 2000 law and its job was to, um, its job was to um, assess the outcomes of these laws. Um, and it has, it did report, it has done reports. Um, it brings together uh, social partners to talk about it. But as you might imagine, if it's not in a ministry, it has no power, zilch, zilch power. So very highly symbolic. Um, but Marie-Jo Zimmerman, the directors have taken, like Gisèle Alamy, who is a big feminist advocate, she was um, involved with it early on, Marie-Dominique uh, Gillot, uh, now Marie-Jo Zimmerman, uh, the person in charge of it now, and now it's kind of lost its role. I think it's actually been integrated with La Alde, which is uh, uh, they're they try to they're trying to create an organization, a government office that oversees all different areas of gender of discrimination. But now there's under Macron, there was a minister, women's ministry, and the Observatoire kind of has faded away. It's it's been taken, it, and some people say we don't need it because. Parody grammar is being uh, accepted. Parody grammar, I do see this question by Emma. Uh, parody grammar, that's different from uh, sex neutral language. The parody grammar was coined by Anne Reviard and her team. And it's the idea of there's a language about parody in amongst elites. The madame, le, ma le madame, le monsieur, that's a whole, that's feminization of titles. And that has nothing to do with parody grammar. Although there has been a further acceptance of feminizations of, of titles. There's more of an acceptance. So there's, there are these cracks. So I hope that helped uh, Susan read that I, I responded to that observatoire. We don't, we don't really, it's, cause it's not, a, it's not an independent watchdog organization. So it's something very French. Uh, right, left cleavages. I, I think I showed in my presentation that or I tried to, that 
parody, uh, the, the promotion to parody, the battle over parody and the placement of it on the books uh, and its implementation has not been a left-right story. It's just not a left-right story because partially because the left and the right wing parties have been male dominated and not open to it. And although there have been male allies like Sauvade and actually uh, Hollande, the socialist president, you know, this is where it's kind of sad that he was so unpopular and, and that he caused the implosion of the socialist party because he was a major advocate of women's rights. And no one really talked about that. And he was the one who got Vallo Belkacem appointed and let her go. And it was that law to that, that, and he supported it. And so almost women's rights was discredited by him. I mean, almost because he was so popular. Um, but it's not a left-right story uh, at all because Mac Macron kind of, took it up, but yet also everyone hates him now because he's been very, um, there's been a huge, like all over the world, there's been this huge outcry through Me Too. In France, they call balance toi mon port, but also the, the femini femicide. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's been huge motivations and Macron has not been on the right side of that. So um, it's not a left-right story. Okay. It's just not uh, in France. Is it? Is it in Germany? Yes. Is it a left right? Yeah, it is very much so. Yeah. Especially in the alt right and the alternative for Germany, uh, quotas, any kind of legislated parody is an absolute no no, and in you know the Bavarian CSU too. Um, but since you ask about Germany, I would like to quickly just say one sentence. I'm, I'm surprised our colleague Joyce Mooshaben is not jumping in on that from the East Coast about this uh, anonymous person saying France is not Germany. Germany has no problem with women leaders. Germany has Angela Merkel. <laughs> if that, however, translates into not having problems with women leaders, I would dispute that. Um, you know. Uh, just the simple fact that it, through her 16 years in office, we have never seen Angela Merkel in a dress should tell you symbolically something about Germany's genderedness and political leadership. But that's- I'm wearing a dress. <laughs> I'm wearing a dress. <laughs> I'm wearing pants and normally I wouldn't allude to that, but that's kind of a, you know, it's, it's a one sentence response to this. Um, Amy, we have time for one more question. And um, if, you, if you want to, and, and if I may, I'd like to ask it about the sanctions, uh, the, the, yes, yes. the coercive function in the parties. You, you said that the initial sanctions were rather weak and parties basically paid it out of their coffee funds. Um, they have <laughs> now been increased, right? Yes. And so yes. in 2022, if parties do not establish candidacies according to the law, those that, that will impact them. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, it's, it's not cheap anymore to not comply with the law. You can't, because the big parties just took the hit and the small parties like uh, Front National, they couldn't afford it because just so everyone knows, and I know it's the end, but it's really important. France is a country that gives funds to political parties. You're only, there's a 7,000 euro limit for individual contributions to campaigns. So campaigns are completely dependent on political party funding. 
And the idea is it's more democratic because it's accountable to the public. So when we talk about penalties, the penalties are given through the money that's given to, to the parties by the government. And the 2014 Belkacem, Vayo Belkacem law put it up to like a hundred, it's like, it's done in proportion of how much you're out of whack with 50%. Um, so yeah, the parties are gonna pay, they know they have to pay. Um, and also, but it's not about, it's about candidates in the first round. It's not about outcomes and it, they don't give a hoot who it is. There's no, and there's no discussion of incumbency. Like, you know, I mean, that's our next, the next study we have to do is looking at, do these women stay in office? What's the incumbency rate? So, you know, again, the law is a product of its context and its limits. And even though the fines are more expensive, um, but no, no one, I mean, people accept it because also they figured out the workarounds, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. they figured out how to work around it. Um, and, uh, and it really, I mean, really the number of women there, the 39% got achieved because Macron had a landslide victory because all the other parties imploded and he happened to respect parity, but yeah, all the, I predict all the parties. I'm glad I see someone kind of agrees about Andy Isabago. We'll have to see. We all have to get back next year. We'll have to do. We'll have to do this next year. It'll be really fun. We'll definitely um, do an election yeah, panel like, next year. Yes. Yeah, that would be really cool. I, I would love to do it. Um, but uh, but uh, yeah, we're gonna have fifty. You know, it's the lists are gonna go and, all and right. progress. So, but I think that the challenge to conclude is whether this real value, if there's really if, if the elites are gonna catch up with the public. And let's face it, that's the whole problem. And, and people are just don't, they're not, I mean, it's kind of like in this country, we're just sick of all the, the pol politicians and the public is just like, are you really not gonna support this? And are you really gonna give us these candidates? And but so, you know, maybe we do have to do a protest vote, but to conclude the, Fran the French, and this is a minute detail, but it's important. They can vote a blank vote. So they don't have to abstain to not vote, mm -hmm. right? To protest. So the French and the and there's been studies of the blank vote, but you know, so they can pro so they, you know, it doesn't have to protest. I see. Have. It I doesn't see. have to be for voting for the Flemish or not. Mm -hmm. So, hey, thank you so much. Uh, we're yeah. out of time. Uh, we'll let you go back to your other activities. Um, <laughs> My other job. That story from laggard to poster child is more complicated than we introduced it initially, uh, but I'm glad you were with us to unpack it a little bit. Thank you much, Amy, and have a good day, everybody.